Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 279 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung. And I'm excited about today's episode because I got to do a Q&A with my last episode guest, Nicole Winter, on her Instagram. And the questions were so good from her audience that I wanted to share that on the podcast. So this is a far-ranging Q&A with me, including questions from the audience of Nicole Winter, my last episode guest, episode 278. You can check out our Instagram handle at Nicole M Runs or at Nicole M Winter underscore. So this was a good Q&A. We cover everything from breathing and running to recovery, to building speed, to what strides are, to how to think about going after a Boston qualifying goal, and then much more. A far-ranging Q&A, lots covered that I think will be helpful for everyone. So I wanted to share it on this platform as well. So I'm going to keep this intro short. We're going to jump right into that Q&A. Again, this is Nicole asking questions of me. And here we go. Yeah, my name is Chris McClung. I am Nicole Nicole's marathon coach yeah. and a coach and owner at Rogue Running here in Austin. And I coach runners because that's my life's passion and have a lot of fun doing it. Yeah. And you've been running for how many years? Uh, myself, I've been running since in some form or another since 1999 so over over 20 years a long time nice all right cool um so we i was explaining to everyone that we have their questions compiled if they want to also ask some questions um as we go they're more than welcome um but we'll just get right to it um so let's see I, the first one that I have, we're not going to go in order of like what makes sense, but somebody okay. asked about tips on breathing. Um, yep. we, I actually had quite a few questions on that, like having a hard time breath, breathing while running um, and all of that. So if there's any tips that you have for breathing during a run. Yes. Uh, well, I'll start by saying there's a good book called Running on Air by a guy named Bud Coates. If you're really wanting to dig into this topic, I would highly recommend grabbing that book. Again, it's called Running on Air by Bud Coates. You can pick it up on Amazon. I think it's fairly reasonably priced. Uh, so that would be one recommendation. Beyond that, um, I think we also have to figure out why you're struggling with breathing. One of the things I think people, one mistakes people, one mistake people make, especially as they're getting into running for the first time, is that they simply go too fast. And so you can't catch your breath because you're going too hard. Your, your effort's not easy enough. So I always encourage people to start slowly and if that means walking first before you run or doing some combination of run walk in order to keep your breathing in control then do that another exercise you can do is start by just simply jogging at an easy effort in place and then get control in that state and then once you have your breathing in control while jogging in place then add a slightly forward lean and start to move forward that's a way to sort of reset yourself and get that breathing under control and then start again. Because ultimately, we can control our breathing and truly our heart rate if we start to think about running as more moving meditation than, than pushing our limits and pushing our edges. So those would be a couple of things to try. Another tip which is recommended in that book, Running on Air, is to, if you're struggling with finding a cadence for breathing, is to think about 
what they describe as an odd even method where you want to breathe in for a different number of steps than you're breathing out. Mm -hmm. Often odd on the inhales and even on the exhales. So you might do three breaths in, two breaths out, two breaths in, one breath, uh, sorry, one step in. Uh, let, me, let me say that again. Three steps breathing in, two steps breathing out, or two steps breathing in, one step breathing out. What that does is it allows you to alternate which foot you're landing on when you're going through that breathing pattern so that because, you're, because your movement, your body movement is different for an inhale versus an exhale, it allows you to essentially create balance in your movement, which also sometimes can help you get into that rhythmic breathing that allows you to control it in a better way. So that's something I play with when I struggle with it. It's also something I play with when I have a side stitch, for example, is oftentimes that can be caused by having your breathing out of sync with your steps. And so if you try to sync up your breath with your steps, that's another way to get, get things back under control and hopefully feel better as you go. Yeah, you actually taught me the, the what is it, um, odd on the, on the breath in and then even on the breath out. And that yeah. helps me, even if it, maybe I'm not having so much trouble with breathing per se, but maybe I feel like I just went a little bit too hard and I just need to like tone things down a little bit. So that's helpful in that sense as well. Yeah, and, and, if you, and, if you, and if you get out of control, because sometimes what happens is we'll be running, we feel good, and then something mm -hmm. happens, maybe we get a hill, we hit a hill, you know, the train changes in some way, or you just find, a, you find yourself in a funk for a brief minute, then always, always start by slowing down or stopping as needed in order mm -hmm. to regain control, because it's hard to get control when you're out of it, right, when things are when things are spinning and or compounding themselves because you're trying to work through it while you're going at a harder effort. So right. always back off, slow down, walk or stay still for a minute and then regain composure and then start again. Cool. And the book was Running on Air? Running on Air by Bud Coates. Okay, cool. All right, moving on. You said something about cadence. And so I figured we could just talk about that. Um, Somebody asked how important is or how important is cadence, um, and what should the average cadence be? It's a good question because you'll often hear a lot about 180 steps per minute as a target cadence or an optimal cadence. And I will say this: there is something to cadence, but there isn't one magic cadence number to be thinking about or worried about. And frankly, there's really, I think it's I, I don't think it's helpful to consciously think about changing your cadence necessarily certainly not for long durations of time there is science that tells us for an average height person that about 180 beats per minute is about optimal in order to find a, a rhythm and cadence that's efficient but that can vary significantly based on your how your body is structured how tall you are athletes that are tend to be taller We'll, we'll often see lower cadence numbers because they've just got longer limbs to turn over. Shorter athletes tend to see higher cadence numbers. Sometimes if your legs are long or short, that can, that can shift what's optimal for you from a cadence perspective. So honestly, I don't tell people to worry about cadence necessarily, at least in terms of an absolute number. What mm -hmm. I like to look at instead is relative cadence and how that cadence might vary when you're going faster or slower as an individual. So oftentimes you can look on your smartwatch, it'll tell you how many steps per minute you're getting throughout a run. 
And what you want to see in general is that when you pick up the pace, when you go faster, that your cadence increases a little bit. That's a natural thing that happens when we go faster. But if your cadence does the opposite, if it decreases when you're running faster, that's a sign that you're overstriding and you're relying too much on pure power to yeah. get your speed versus using that turnover. And so if your cadence goes down when you go faster, that's an area that can be a problem either for creating injury. It's also less efficient. So it's going to make it harder to run faster. It's also harder to run longer when you're overstriding. So you want to work on that a little bit. And I know you had a question about running form as well. And these things I think go hand in hand in terms of the things you want to do to actually fix it. So yeah. we can get to that question if you want to. Yeah, let because, me see. Because also, I don't want I don't want people actively using a metronome or anything to try to to try to change their cadence. Instead, what you want to do is work on the building blocks of good efficient form and then ultimately it will improve itself over time without you having to think about it totally and also somebody said how do we track cadence but that's just on really any gps or most yeah most smart watches or gps's will do it i'm not sure i would assume there's that capability on on a phone as well because typically it's just using the accelerometer in your device in order to figure out what the ups and downs look like yeah. All right. Why? Oh, okay. Yeah. The question was, sorry, I couldn't find it for a second. And now it's staring right at me. Can you give <laughs> tips on best running form? So I think the best running form is the most efficient form for you. And so I'm not someone who promotes you trying to match anyone else's form. You know, if you go to a race, you'll see all different, all different versions of form, even at the front at the, you know, at the pro or elite level. And so there's no magic form to target. You want to work within the context of how your body moves. And so the best thing to do is to try to make your movement patterns more efficient. And there's really four ways to do that without having to think about it. Your body will naturally find efficiency. The first is just by simply running more. So the more you increase your volume, your miles per week from whatever your starting point that mileage on your feet will actually help your body find a more efficient place and more efficient form. So simply time on your feet is one way to do it without having to think about your form. Another way to do it is to work on form drills. And you know these are simple things. You may have done them in sports or as a, as a kid, things like high knees and butt flicks and bounding and skipping. Those types of drills essentially break down the movement patterns of running into its athletic subcomponents and allow you to work on those subcomponents and become more efficient at each. So if you're not a good skipper, for example, then that helps work on, you know, bringing that leg back underneath your foot in your running motion. And so simply doing skipping will help you become better and more efficient at that. So form drills, I recommend people do those at least once a week. I like doing them on your faster day so that you can do it after a warm-up as another form of dynamic warm-up that also works on form. So that's the second thing. Third thing is strides. I think we've talked about this on one of our prior podcasts. Weekly strides where you're basically doing a short controlled sprint, not more than four to six of these after a warm-up or after a run will help you because they're like, I call them inoculations of speed. They're like little allergy shots of speed where essentially one session isn't going to make a difference. But if you do them every week, once a week for a period of years, then eventually that's going to translate into more efficient 
form. So strides once a week. And then lastly, strength work and mobility, all the things that you promote on your other account, the Cole mm -hmm. M winter underscore is going to make you more efficient because when we do strength work and when we work on mobility, we become better athletes and better athletes tend to have more efficient form. Yep. And can you, I actually did have a question in my question box about what is a stride. So could you just explain that in case people don't know that terminology? Yeah. So a stride is a short controlled sprint. The way I like to tell people to do it is to find an 80 to 100 meter stretch of road or track just like the straightaway on the track is the exact distance you're looking for. It could also be on a football field. For example, if you have a, a football field nearby or some sort of ball field. So you want to think about at least mentally breaking down that 80 to 100 meter stretch in thirds. And what you want to do is build for the first third of that. So start building your speed for the first third, hold your speed for the middle third at about 85 to 90% of peak speed and then let off the gas, don't break, but just cruise for the final third. So you're really only getting to that top sprint speed for that middle third, maybe about 30 meters, and then you're letting off the gas and cruising to the finish. And then you walk back for full recovery and repeat that. Again, small doses, only four to six at a time. You wanna probably start with four and then build up to more, but it is a game changer in terms of not only building raw speed, but also making you more efficient from a form perspective. Right. I had, I've had those in my speed workouts the past couple of weeks. Yep. So there, I think they're fun. Maybe I won't be saying that though. <laughs> no, strides are fun. The thing that's fun about strides is it, it shouldn't be hard, right? Yeah. I mean, you're only holding your top speed for a short window of time and then you're getting a full recovery. You're able to walk back. And so if you're doing it the right way and at the right effort, it shouldn't be too taxing and it should be fun because it's fun to run fast. Yeah. Agreed. Especially for all the people that struggle with running slow on their easy runs or not slow, but you know what I mean? <laughs> right. All right. So moving on, um, I guess we'll go here since we're talking about speed advice for increasing speed on distance runs. So I assume they mean as they progress in their mileage. Yeah, so the, the trick with increasing speed is that you actually have to start with the basics, which is increasing easy running volume first. You have to go slow to go fast is what I always preach. And that starts by increasing the mileage at easy efforts. Because what happens when we increase our volume at easy efforts is we're actually working the, the appropriate part of the aerobic, uh, the aerobic system in order to build the size of your aerobic engine. That's done at easy efforts. We need you to have a big, big engine in order to run fast. And so step one is honestly increase your, your volume, your mileage at easy efforts, incorporating things like strides to give you small doses of speed to make sure you're not losing that component. And then once that's established, then you can start to add another type of speed work in small doses. It doesn't take a lot. You really, most people really only need about one focused speed day a week. And the other runs should be easy, again, separate from that stride session. But then we start doing small doses of speed to work on the top end. You know, if you're structuring this in the format of training for a race, you're going to want to, over time, hopefully periodize this work a little bit. But it's simple things like doing short intervals, picking up the pace a little bit. I know on your schedule, we've got some one-minute pickups coming up in a few weeks. 
And that's just a fart lick style workout where you run a minute faster by effort and then two to three minutes easy and then repeat that for six to eight reps. It's just small doses of speed that helps you make, make you more efficient. And then when you combine that with the aerobic capacity that you're building by running easy, that's when the speed over longer distance comes. And a lot of people ask me all the time, they're like, how is it possible for me to run 10K or half marathon or marathon at paces faster than I ever run for, a, for an entire run? And the answer is because when you go to race day, we put it all together. We combine that aerobic capacity from the easy runs and we combine that speed from the small doses that you get on speed days. And then it comes together to get the result. That's the way it works. That's how the, the pie is made. And if you're doing it the right way and if you want to optimize your potential, it's a little bit counterintuitive, I know. But I promise you, and having coached for the last 15 years, that it works. It works. I was skeptical <laughs> for my first marathon. I mean, your, your case is the perfect example. I mean, we did absolutely no work that would have told us that you could run a 331 marathon. Like Literally yeah. none of the things that we did indicated that because we were being very conservative for your first marathon. We were, we were choosing slower paces, paces with intentions so as to keep you healthy along the way. And then and of course, focusing on those easy runs and building volume, and then you show up on race day and you crushed it. So you're a, you're a living example that it works. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was very, when you told me that, I was like, Ooh, I don't know. And then once <laughs> I started this running account and seeing more runners on Instagram, talk about how important it was to go slow. I was like, all right, we'll see what happens. And of course, you know, ended up working out because what was my goal time was 340, right? We had talked about a 340 and you ran a 331. So yeah. So, living proof right here. Um, okay. So how long should you train for? I assume maybe we can just go over half and marathon. Cause I would assume they're talking about one of the two. Yeah. If you're, if you're talking about really any distance, you really want to think longer term than most people think for half in the marathon. You want to think about 20 weeks, sometimes even a little bit longer. So about a five month stretch where you're prepping specifically for that race. We, again, want to break that up into phases. I know we've talked about this before, but typically a phased approach to train for any race like that would be to start with what we call the priming phase. Some people call it a base building phase where you're building mileage, working a little bit of speed just to prime the system for the future work. Then you go into an aerobic strength phase where our focus is on building endurance or your ability to sustain slightly slower paces for longer periods of time. And then we go into a race specific phase where you're working on your race specific pacing. And then we finish with a taper in order to make sure you're peaked and ready for race day. So those are the phases for half marathon and marathon, about 20 weeks. You want to give yourself about four to five weeks for that priming phase. And then about six weeks each for those aerobic strength and race specific phases. And then finish with about a three week taper. For 5Ks and 10Ks, it kind of depends on how, what your goals are and how experienced you are at those distances. You know, you could train for a 5K with a 12-week program, I think, very comfortably. Uh, a 10K, perhaps 16 weeks is a little bit better, depending on what your starting point is. So when the distances get a little bit shorter, we can shorten those time frames a little bit. But no matter what, we want to make sure that you go in and you start a program with a good foundation so that you can get the most from it when you do start that race specific work.
Mm-hmm. And then what would you say is a sufficient amount of time? Um, like, let's say I just ran a marathon last weekend. How long should I wait to train for another race? So after a marathon, at least three weeks. Now, that doesn't mean you're not running necessarily. I do recommend some light, easy running in those three weeks to make sure that you're getting movement, which creates blood flow, which promotes that healing process post-marathon. But you want to wait at least three weeks before you restart another program after a marathon. After a half marathon, I would say one to two weeks, depending on how, how consistently you run throughout the year. After a 5K or 10K, probably a week. But that's also... But you also have to keep in mind that for those that are serial racers that want to race frequently, that's okay. But you want to also make sure that you have those windows of the year where you're not necessarily training for anything. Still want to be running, still want to be maintaining fitness, but giving yourself that mental break from specific training where you might be doing a month where you're just running easy and doing what you feel like doing outside of the context of a specific program. Totally. And on that note, um, somebody asked benefits of working with a coach. Um, what if I'm running races just for fun? So I would love to talk to this person individually because I have a way of, of coercing people or maybe encouraging is a better word them to want to go for something beyond having fun personally. So first of all, whatever your goals are, they're good goals. There's no goals that are better than other. We talked better than others. We talked about this on the end of our podcast mm-hmm. that you were on last week with me, episode 278 of Running Rogue. Put a plug in for that. Yeah, and I'll we talked about that again after yeah. this. All, all, all goals are worthy goals, regardless of what whether it's to cover a distance, to run a certain time, or to just have fun. That yeah. is a worthy goal if that's what mm-hmm. motivates you and keeps you driven to go do the movement, which keeps you healthy and active. That said, if you're going to have fun, I want you to have the most fun. And personally, I think it's more fun when you're fit and ready and trained for a race. And it doesn't have to be super rigorous or really structured, but a coach can help you create a basic blueprint and skeleton for your training that's going to allow you to go into race day prepared so that you can show up and have the most fun because you're fit and ready for that race. Mm -hmm. Another thing I would say here is that sometimes people default to the fun goal Again, nothing wrong with that goal if that's to your goal. But some people default to that because they think they're not worthy of another goal of running longer or running faster. And I'm one who's going to tell you, regardless of where you are in the pack, front to back, you are worthy of achieving or targeting a goal that that is is big for you and whatever that looks like. And that can be fun, too. So I would always push people to just ask themselves, you know, am I scared of something? Am I focusing just on the fun element because I'm afraid to push myself or I'm afraid to set a bigger goal because of what might come with that or because I don't feel worthy? And if those things are true, if there's those little hangups, then then a coach can definitely help because they can show you that no matter what, you can accomplish things that you never thought possible with the help of someone else. Mm-hmm. And I will this- say, like, I technically run for fun. Like I do have time goals, but like to me, it's ultimately because I enjoy it and I want to have fun. Yeah, it can be both, right? You yeah. can have fun and have time goals, or you can have periods of time where you're chasing those time goals and periods of time where you're just doing it more casually for fun, which I know you've done. That's all good. The other nice thing about a coach is that a coach has the power, if it's a good coach, 
to tell you what's possible for you. You know, I love nothing more in my role as a coach than to than to see potential in someone and tell them that they have that potential, even though they aren't sure or, doubt or have doubts, and then help reveal to them that that's possible over time by giving them the right work. Yeah, 100%. Um, I will say, too, with any training, even if you're doing it for fun, you still are doing something with your body that like needs to be done safely and in a correct way. So even if you're doing it for fun and you're following a training plan, like for example, when I had my injury or I was going to be out of town, it's just nice to have somebody who knows what's going on and knows what to do to help guide you because then you can, instead of stressing about it all of a sudden, right? Because now you don't know what to do with your training plan. You get to have somebody that can help you figure it out, have a new plan, whatever it is. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Cool. Um, and then let's see advice for first marathon, somebody who's doing a mountain trail marathon. I will say we do have a whole like live on my other page about advice for a first marathon. So maybe just keep it to like the important. <laughs> yeah. So I'll, I'll want to address that specifically. I saw that question and they were talking about a trail and mountainous marathon, which is a different yeah. animal altogether than a road marathon the most there are two there are two most important things for an off-road marathon one is fueling and hydration because typically in those environments you're hiking significant amounts of time which is absolutely important in order to get through it but you need to make sure because you're typically out there a little bit longer you need to make sure you're really dialed in on your nutrition and hydration because that might be the thing that becomes a limiting factor for you more than fitness because you're going to be out there a little bit longer, have more time perhaps between aid stations, for example. And so you have to think about planning food, hydration, making sure you're taking things in that are going to be easy on your stomach, easily digestible. And then you have to map that to what's available on the course, whether or not you have aid stations or you have to drop stuff yourself, have, have people supporting you in whatever format. You need to think through those things and make sure you have a plan. And then, of course, practice all of that in training so that you have an opportunity to see what works and what doesn't and then iterate on it. So that's uh, point number one there. Point number two is, and by the way, that applies also to road marathons. You want to make sure you have a nutrition and hydration plan as well. But on the trail, it becomes even more important. And then, and then uh, secondly, you have to think about practicing on that type of terrain in whatever way you can. And so if you live in the mountains or you have access to hills or anything close by, you want to try to do training runs and or longer work that mimics, mimics the terrain that you're going to be following on race day as closely as possible. I did a, a trail 50 miler and it was in the mountains uh, near Whistler in, in Canada and we don't have mountains in Austin, so I couldn't go run or hike in the mountains in order to prepare. So what I had to do is find the biggest hills in Austin and run and walk up those uh, several times in training to make sure that I was prepared for that terrain. And so you want to look at the train you're going to have for the race itself and then try to mimic that as much as you can in training. So those would be my two tips. Well, cool. um, all right, let's see here. We will do two more questions. Is there anything that we haven't answered yet that you want to cover? I think there was a question about Boston qualifying. Yeah. Yep. There's a question about Boston qualifying and then trying to figure out um, like a realistic goal time. So let's cover both of those. 
Yeah, those are good questions. So yeah, the, the so, question, so, just to say it out loud for everyone, yep. um, somebody said, what are the best training plan or tips for a Boston qualifier? So one, listen to the episode with you that I'll plug again, because we talked about your Boston goals and some of the prep for that. But there's really, so I, I wouldn't necessarily be super specific on the training elements of this, because it's got to be personal to you. But I'll, I'll give some nuggets there, but start with a couple of points. First of all, you need to understand why you want to run Boston Marathon. I know that it's a common goal, and believe me, it's a worthy goal that a lot of people have, and it's an amazing thing as a coach to help people get there. But you have to have a personal relationship with that goal, just like I pushed you on in our episode. You've got to understand why you personally want to go to Boston, because what that's going to do is allow you to tap into that motivation when things get hard, because it's not an easy goal to achieve. And you need to understand that it's not just about that external validation that you get from getting a standard that other people want. It's also something that you have a personal connection to. And so one thing I recommend there is to go watch, there's a documentary called Boston. You can stream it, I think, on most of the platforms. It tells the history of the race and gives you more details on the 2014 race, which was the year after the bombing. Really powerful documentary that allows you to really connect to the purpose of Boston and why it's so magical and develop your own personal relationship with that goal. So that's one thing. Second thing is that you need to think long-term. Everybody's always rushing to get to Boston, but the thing is we have time mm -hmm. and you don't want to sh take shortcuts to get there. You want to do it in the right way. And you want to think long-term because sometimes it takes a while to get there because it's a big challenging goal to achieve. And so you, you don't want to think, Oh, I'm going to get this in six months or a year and you might, some people that are able to get it that quickly, but you want to think that this is a three to five year goal and that you're committed to the process to get there over that timeline, because it's going to allow you to think long-term to structure your training in a way that's going to be optimal for your development to get there. And then ultimately also allow you to endure the ups and downs that might come along the way. In terms of specific training tips, my best advice would be when you're in marathon training to make sure you're getting plenty of 20 mile runs. I really think that you need to, if you're, if that's your goal to be doing four to six 20 mile runs per cycle, or at least build yourself up to that point. And also to be incorporating pace work into at least two or three of those 20 mile runs. So that you're able to practice marathon pace over distance when you're tired, because that's what it takes to get that goal. Nice. Or hire a coach like you. I can paint <laughs> you know, the picture and show you. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, okay, cool. And then, wait, was, were you done with that? Yep. We move on. Okay. Um, how do you plan a realistic first marathon goal time? Based, oh, she specified based on your half marathon time. Yeah, great question. There are calculators might be if trained for another distance that can go in there plug in your half marathon time, it'll tell you what's possible for the marathon. Another rule of thumb is to double your time from the half and add 10 minutes. So if you've run 145 for the half, if you double that, that's two, or that's three and a half hours for the marathon plus 10 minutes, then you're probably able to run about a 340 in theory, if you're trained and ready for that marathon. Now, Usually when someone's doing their first marathon, I also want them to think about two other goals beyond time. One, just finishing, of course, getting across that line. And two, finishing in a way that you feel strong and you're hungry for more. So, so oftentimes for someone's first marathon, I will take that 
translated a half marathon time, project it to the marathon time, and then add potentially five to 10 more minutes in order to give them some buffer in terms of their target time so that they have potential to feel good and strong in that first marathon. Because I think if you have a good first experience and you finish, maybe finishing feeling, feeling like you left a little bit out there, then that's nothing. There's no better motivation to go into your next race. Mm-hmm. I think that's exactly what we did for mine. Cause what my half marathon time was 140 and double it, add 10 minutes, add another five to 10. And that was exactly what we did. Yep. So cool. All right. Do you have time? We only have two more questions, so we might as well good. cover them. Okay, cool. Um, I think this one is actually pretty important. They said, legs are heavy even after a rest day during my marathon training, how to improve recovery. Ooh, good question. And I actually have an episode on this that I think is pretty helpful. I'd have to go back and dig it up. But there's basically you want to kind of go through a checklist of things that might be happening when you're feeling sluggish anytime, not just in marathon training. And when we're talking about sluggishness here, then I'm talking not just about a one-off, had a bad run. I'm talking about a week or two weeks where every run just starts to feel hard and the legs are heavy for a sustained period of time. Because look, we're all going to have bad runs. So if it's just a one-off, shake it off, you know, get some good sleep and go see how it is on the next one. But if it starts to stack up, and become a pattern for you, then we need to ask ourselves some questions about what might be going on. And so there's a checklist you can go to or go through to ask yourself what I might need to do. First is always, am I going easy enough on my easy runs? Am I going easy enough on my easy runs? Because the common mistake people make is they go too fast. And then when they combine those faster, easy runs with speed work and long runs, in a marathon training cycle, it puts them, puts them over the edge and the legs aren't able to recover. So you need to be going slow enough on those easy runs, at least a minute per mile slower than marathon pace on your easy runs and long runs, and then about two minutes per mile slower on recovery runs. So are you going slow enough on your recovery runs is a question. Another question is, am I sleeping enough? Has there been some change in sleep that's causing me to not get what I need? And if so, maybe you need to reset. Maybe you need to take a week where you drop the volume a little bit and sleep more in order to make sure you're rebalanced, potentially throwing in some naps here and there, which is a trick that I use. So sleep is a question. Fueling is another question. Am I fueling enough, particularly post-run? That's a window I think we don't often think about, but post-workouts, post-long runs, that next 90 minutes is really important where you want to get a filling balanced meal with carbs, proteins, and fats to make sure that you're refueling your body in the right ways, because that's when your body is looking for those building blocks to recover, and it's able to absorb them most efficiently. And if you're not giving it, your body it during that window, it's harder for your body to absorb it in another window later. So fueling, another thing you want to ask yourself is is everything okay? And this kind of gets down the list when, when you're, you've done all those other things and it's still not working, is there some underlying blood value issue? And so if someone has done those things, they're going easy enough, they're getting enough sleep, they're fueling well enough. If all those things are checked and they're still feeling sluggish, then I would go get a simple blood panel and see if there's something from an underlying blood panel perspective that might be going on. Cause that's where somebody might be dealing with anemias or issues like that, that could be underneath the surface and not visible and so that's when you go and check the system and see if that's okay and that's a pretty good list uh, of things to check and if you 
you know, check all those boxes and, and I would imagine you'll find something in there that's perhaps needs to be optimized further in order to better balance your recovery. And if you don't, then I would highly recommend seeing a medical provider and see if they can help you sort through it. Well, good answer. I feel like that's a laundry list of things. And a lot of things that people don't realize is I would say probably most common going too fast on your runs. Um, also not understanding how important nutrition is to physical recovery. So good list. All right. We have one last Yeah. Question. You have to fuel your body. Yeah. Right. Go ahead. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. I was just going to say you have to fuel, especially in marathon training. Yeah, there's a few running accounts. Um, there's like a dietitian runner or something that puts up like really good formulas for like post-run, immediately make yourself a smoothie, whatever, so that you can just cool down and like gain your appetite back. And then within that 90 minutes, still make your actual meal. Um, and I'll share that account later. But last question is kind of a long one. Um, I wanted to make sure we covered this because this person DM'd me to make sure we covered it. Um, but what is your thoughts Chris, on running longer than three hours for marathon training. Um, basically talking about how some say that you don't get any benefit past the three hours, but if you have a 20 miler on the schedule, you're obviously going to go longer than three hours. Um, so basically they were wondering if you should go past three hours to get their 20 miles in. Yes. Good question. I know there was a Twitter debate about this, this very week (laughs) that I was following. So I, I am not a believer in three hours being some sort of magical limit or ceiling on which you should cut or cap your long runs. If you wanted to put a cap out there, then I think you could consider four hours perhaps. But ultimately, my philosophy as a coach is that you, you have to get ready to cover the distance and to, to deal with the time on the feet that you're going to have over 26.2 miles. And I don't think there's anything magical that happens at three hours that would say you shouldn't go longer. So my recommendation is to get in those 20 mile runs and do them as long as it takes. And obviously if, if there's an issue with just logistics or if you're struggling with how your body is, is dealing with that as that lengthens and depending on your pace, then you could consider a four hour cap, but I wouldn't cut it shorter than that. Ultimately, we have to get that time on our feet and ideally do it mostly at easy paces so that we're also working aerobic capacity at the same time. But there's no magical science or study that says three hours is some cap that we should follow. And for most people, it's it's almost impossible to get a, a long run done at the right paces and efforts under three hours. Yeah. I mean, I, I personally struggle with that sometimes and I've run two hours and 45 minutes for the marathon. And so, you know, so to, to cap it there, I think you're just going to be shortchanging yourself in terms of building up not only the aerobic endurance, but also the neuromuscular endurance to cover the full distance. So don't cap it at three. If you must cap it at four, but even then I would fudge that if somebody that was going to be four hours and 15 minutes to do 20 for somebody, I would tell them to do it. Yeah. Yeah, I think even one of my 20 mile runs, I ran faster, a faster pace than you had wanted me to. And then the next time, I think that was like in three hours and some odd minutes. But then my next one, I did it longer in like three and a half hours. And you had to explain this is important because we need you on your feet, you know, for this amount of time. People all the time, they'll say, well, I'm never running 26 miles in training. How am I going to do it on race day? Mm -hmm. Well, you might not run that distance in training, but you might run the same time on your feet 
that you will in training. So I don't remember the distance of your long runs, but you probably did about three hours and 40 minutes or three hours and 30 minutes at least on those easy 20 mile runs. So that then when you go to, when you go do that on race day, you know, again, it's not the same distance, but at the same time, it's the same time on your feet. So your, your body knows what's happening. Yep. hundred percent. Cool. Well, thank you. Um, I want people to know where they can find you. Um, I get a lot of questions about how people should reach to, to inquire about training and all of that. So let us all know. Yeah. Go to, uh, roadrunning.com is, is the site for my business. You can also listen to my podcast running rogue, which is available on all platforms. I've got 278 episodes of coaching content, including the latest episode with you. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there's plenty of stuff to dig into there that can give you a foundation on what, what I'm talking about when I go through all this stuff. And I think I've answered almost every question in one form or another. They can also, people can also just email me, Chris at roguerunning.com or send me a DM at rogue Chris. I'm happy to answer questions one off as well. Yeah. Do you prefer people come to your um, personal account or to the rogue running account? If they want to talk to me, my personal account, I'm not managing the rogue running account right now. All right, uh, so I will get it if they go that route. That'll get passed on to me, but it'll just, there'll be more layers. So all right. just go, so go to at Rogue, at Rogue Chris yes. and or email me, Chris at Rogue Running. Perfect. And then I'll make sure to link um, our podcast episode if y'all want more stuff about Boston and all of that. And then what, there was another podcast episode that you said you have somewhere. And I can't remember what we were talking about. It was the one about checklist on things of recovery and if that's not going well, but I don't okay. remember the episode. So I'd have to search that up if somebody no wants to email me. Okay, perfect. All right. Well, thank the, you so the much. title of that one, by the way, the title of that one is so they could search it is navigating yeah. a running funk. So okay. I don't remember the episode number, but if they wanted to look up that they can, they can check it out. Also, if you go to episode 256, I did a recent episode that gives a really good overview on my coaching philosophy. It's a good primer. If you want to start with one episode, check out 256. Cool. Well, I recommend anybody come your way because I've had a great experience so far. And I'm, like I said, we left our, my marathon hungry for more the second I crossed the finish line. So if that doesn't tell you something, then I don't know (laughs) what will, but anyway, thank you for taking the time. Um, This will be saved here and I'll make sure to share it in my stories after, but yeah, and I think we had some questions in the comments, Nicole. So you should oh, note those for next for next time. Okay, and perfect. we can get them on our next slide. But we'll do another one of these. Well, yeah, we'll do another one in a couple of weeks, and then always feel free to DM either of us with your questions. Awesome. There we go. Q and A with Nicole again. You can check out her Instagram handle at Nicole M Runs or at Nicole M Winter underscore. I appreciate her having me on, and returning the favor after jumping on with me the prior week. So that'll wrap this episode. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.